Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. We have a great guest joining us today, but before I introduce him, a moment of housekeeping. It was almost a year ago that we first talked about changing our name from Lockdown TV when we were hoping that lockdown would end. Yes, that was at the end of last summer. Well, here we are, and it's still, to some extent, going on here in the UK. So our vow is that we will no longer be Lockdown TV after lockdown is finally lifted. The date is scheduled for 19th of July. We'll see whether that actually happens. But ideas for what we should be called in the era after are very welcome, so please put them in the comments down below and we will check them out. So today joining us, we have someone we've been looking forward to speaking to for some time. His name is Rupert Sheldrake. He's an author and a biologist. Below the surface of the sort of day-to-day -day events which we have to live through, there are bigger changes over longer timescales taking place, which are movements towards opening up rather than closing down famous for some decades now for investigating uh, concepts outside the mainstream of scientific orthodoxy. Um, and he's here to talk science and much else with us. So let me just start by asking, what's your experience of the past year and a half been in terms of the role that science has been playing in our society? It's struck us from all of the interviews we've done that science has got suddenly a much more central and hard-edged position in how we organize our societies? Well, I think it's always very important, but it's become obviously much more sort of frontline news during this lockdown, because if you've got an epidemic going on, the people you want to talk to are people who understand epidemics, viruses, vaccines, etc. And those are scientists, not philosophers or political commentators. Now, obviously, it involves political decisions as well, but the science is obviously vitally important in all this. Have you observed a shift that has worried you at all um, in terms of the kind of the, the conversation around science? It feels like 
ideas that are not acceptable uh, have been treated differently. I, there have been uh, there's been a greater effort to to censor to kind of push down any dissenting ideas. I'm not sure if you've witnessed that over the past year and a half. Well, I'm utterly used to it. So I haven't seen this as a new phenomenon. I mean, the scientific world has always um, had a culture of pushing down dissenting ideas. Um, it's not pluralistic. I mean, most worlds, political worlds, religious worlds, um, uh, sports worlds, most worlds are pluralistic. You get different points of view and you expect it in politics, in courts of law, you have the prosecution and the defense. But in science, you don't. Um, you have a, the idea of a magisterium, the expert opinion, the orthodox view, um, which has never been particularly tolerant of dissenting views. Um, I think that that, on the other hand, you see, I mean, I'm totally pro-science. I mean, I spend my I've spent my whole career doing scientific research, so I'm certainly not anti-science. Uh, but the, there is this unfortunate part of scientific culture which doesn't admit much dissent. Um, and then, of course, it gets reinforced by wild conspiracy theories. I mean, because I'm known to be a dissenting scientist, my email inbox is filled with all sorts of strange correspondence. I had one just yesterday, someone sent me uh, a recording of a channeled uh, piece of information from a deceased person or supposedly from a deceased person telling me that I shouldn't have the COVID vaccine because it's all a Zionist and a Vatican conspiracy to eliminate most of the world's population. I mean, uh, when I get that kind of communication, then it makes me feel, well, thank goodness for regular science. It's finding that balance between being able to query the orthodoxy and challenge it repeatedly, but then not go completely off the reservation. Is that a balance that you think you've managed to strike over the years? Well, I try to strike that balance myself. Um, I mean, in relation to COVID, for example, I, I take a fairly conventional view. You know, I've been vaccinated and I was very glad there was a vaccine. but. The, within uh, other areas of science, you know, I do research in unconventional areas, and I often encounter irrational opposition, um, especially from people who now say they follow the science. They very often don't follow the science when it doesn't agree with their opinions or prejudices. Um, and I think, you know, one of the litmus tests for scientism, uh, an extreme faith in science, um, people have made science into a kind of religion. Uh, the litmus paper for scientism that most effectively gives you a reading read uh, when you encounter scientism is to mention the word telepathy. If you mention the word telepathy, most people think, oh yeah, I've had telepathic experiences or you know, I know who's phoning before I pick up the phone or look at the caller ID or you know, that happened with me. Or, most people, or they say, well, I don't know if there's any evidence for it or not. But people who are true believers in scientism get incredibly irrational and often angry at the mention of this word um, and deny there's any evidence for it, usually in complete ignorance of the evidence. So um, I, there are certain areas where following the science simply doesn't apply if it's not in areas that fit with the beliefs of uh, orthodox science. So we had uh, Professor Richard Dawkins on the show uh, last week, 
Um, and we talked about the word scientism, and he responded not well, I would say. Scientism is not a word that I would use myself. It's a dirty word. It's used by people who are critical of scientists who they see as going too far and trying to usurp territory which properly belongs to other fields. What I understand by it is something negative, which is sometimes applied to me and which I disown. Um, I, I think that science actually is the only way to understand what is true about the real world. I do not think that science is the right way to decide what is right and wrong or what is aesthetically pleasing. That's a, that's a matter for other, others to judge. What would your definition of scientism be? Well, I think the, the idea that science can solve all the problems of the world and also in a kind of religious sense where science becomes a religion, then it's humanity's salvation. The scientists are the saviors of the world. Um, it's a kind of messianic in its extreme forms, a kind of messianic salvation cult. Um, now, and of course, science does help us. I'm first to admit, I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation on the internet and through computers if there wasn't any science. Um, so uh, obviously there are many advantages to science and many successes and triumphs. But scientism is the uh, belief that the scientific worldview, by which they usually mean the materialist worldview, uh, is the only valid way of looking at reality. Do you feel that that has changed recently though? I mean, certainly from where I'm sitting, it does feel that, for example, the number of scientists who are on the TV all the time, the dominance of charts, the sense that only things that are measurable are worth talking about, it feels that we have sort of taken a significant step in the direction of scientism in the past year and a half period. Um, I don't actually see it that way. I mean, I think it's perfectly valid to have charts if you're looking at infection rates, in fact, quite helpful. Um, and if you have to make government policy on the basis of, you know, epidemic infections, R values, etc., that's much better than just anecdotal evidence. And um, so personally, I haven't found that a problem. Uh, the problems I have with scientism are much more to do with generic prejudices, uh, which hold back research in areas that don't fit to, with a narrow materialist ideology. You wrote a book called The Science Delusion, uh, which was a response to Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. Uh, what what is the science delusion? Well, first I should say the title came from my publishers, not me. Um, they thought it would sell more if it was pitched as a response to Richard Dawkins. I was dealing with a much bigger question than Richard Dawkins, namely the ideology of materialism. I mean, he's a proponent of it, so he's a good example of it. But um, the, the science delusion is the belief that science already understands the nature of reality in principle leaving any of the details to be filled in. And that understanding includes a number of dogmas or assumptions, which are nature's mechanical, matter's unconscious, uh, the mind is nothing but the brain, mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works, uh, the laws of nature are fixed, and so on. I won't enumerate them all, but um, there are certain basic assumptions which are part of this materialist worldview 
And the one that most affects research in medicine and um, understanding consciousness is the dogma that the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain. Um, this fits with the idea that um, the body is nothing but a machine. And that leads to a medical system, mechanistic medicine, uh, which thinks the only valid forms of medicine are drugs and surgery, chemical or physical treatments. Actually, the same science has proved that um, many other factors influence it, and they're often lumped together under the title, the placebo response, um, which shows that people's expectations, hopes, um, feeling of being cared for, beliefs, uh, have a major effect on healing, um, sometimes as great an effect as drugs or surgery. Is it, are you talking about the soul there? Well, I don't use the word soul because the word soul is, is, has so many different meanings. I'd have to spend 10 minutes trying to define what I mean by it. Um, the mind will do. The mind clearly affects the body. I mean, just in the simplest thing, if I decide to lift my arm, um, my mind's affected my body. Um, and our minds have effects on healing. I mean, if people are depressed, their immune system is much less active and they're able less able to fend off diseases um, and then there's the question of where the mind is is the mind just confined to the inside of your brain or does it stretch beyond it and part of my research one of the reasons it's controversial is that i think the mind stretches beyond the brain um, through fields just as the activity of a magnet stretches beyond the surface of the actual iron bar that's the magnet and the field of the Earth, the gravitational field of the Earth, stretches invisibly far into space and keeps the moon in its orbit. And I think our minds have fields. And um, I think when we look at something, like when you're seeing me now, um, I think the image you're seeing on your screen uh, is not located inside your head, which is the official view. The official view is light goes into you, through your eyes, into your impulses into your brain, and then you produce images inside the head. Um, I'm suggesting that the image is where it seems to be outside you. And um, if we look at somebody from behind, I think the fact our minds reach out and as it were, touch them, is an explanation for the rather mysterious phenomenon of the sense of being stared at, which over 90% of the population have experienced. Um, so I think that's one of the dogmas that I look at. And I think that this idea, it's all inside the brain, which is part of the dogma of scientism uh, and the materialist worldview, leads to this extremely truncated view of human minds. The theories that you've just, just laid out, I don't know whether they are uh, defensible or not, or whether you have proven the case uh, convincingly enough. I know some people will take different views than others. But I would certainly defend your right to put them out there and for it to be a legitimate discussion uh, rather than a, a forbidden question. Uh, I know you've, you've received one of your videos, a, a TED talk, I think it was, was removed um, because it had, was deemed to be, uh, un, uh, in, uh, I don't know, pseudoscience or something like that. Have you noticed that tendency that asking those kind of questions, investigating those areas, is being shut down. Oh, yes. I mean, this isn't just a personal opinion. It's a fact. I mean, if you look at a whole range of phenomena, like the sense of being stared at, uh, telephone telepathy, um, 
dogs that know when their owners are coming home. All of these areas I've investigated experimentally and published results in peer-reviewed journals. Um, these things are not taught in science curriculums. In most universities, you couldn't possibly investigate these. There are two or three universities in Britain, fortunately, where you can, notably Northampton. Um, but the, these uh, are subjects which are considered completely taboo uh, within the scientific world and branded as pseudoscience. Um, and then believers in scientism and uh, who've captured many parts of Wikipedia then edit all the pages to do with topics like this and also alternative medicine um, to make it sound as if these are, there's no evidence, they're completely bogus, it's all pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. This is simply an expression of their prejudice. And most of the people with this prejudice are very ignorant of the actual evidence. So uh, scientism and this kind of dogmatic skepticism is much more than just a personal opinion of a few people like Richard Dawkins. It affects the entire educational system and uh, is, uh, you know, dominates uh, many pages of Wikipedia, which is extremely unreliable in any areas to do with taboo topics for scientism. I suppose what seems to me is that formal science or orthodox science is very much celebrated and allowed. And meanwhile, discussion of religion or discussion of ethics is also perfectly allowable and not taboo. It's when they come together, it's the sort of areas in between that people tend to get spooked by. Do you, do you think there's something in that, that it's the sort of liminal spaces that are becoming most taboo? I don't think it's necessarily the liminal spaces that are taboo. I think it, they're only taboo really they're not taboo for most people. You know, if I discuss dogs that know when their owners are coming home with most people, most people are curious, interested. A lot of people say, well, my dog does that. Um, the, the, um, you know, and then there's the question, well, how do they do it? Is it telepathy? Is it just routine? Is it hearing familiar car sounds? Then you do experiments to find out, which I have done. Um, most people don't have a problem. But as I say, these issues are a litmus paper test for believers in scientism and materialism because they'll immediately get terribly emotional about these things and say it's rubbish. Um, I don't think most people have a problem. And when it comes to the areas between science and religion, there's now an area opening up which I address in my recent book, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, where Scientists have been studying the effects of spiritual practices like meditation, and these have measurable effects. You know, it affects blood pressure, it affects stress levels, it affects, it helps insomnia, helps prevent depression. Um, and the benefits of spiritual practices are now very well established. People who have religious or spiritual practices, generally speaking, uh, live longer, are happier um, and healthier. Um, and this has not been lost on some of the new atheists. I mean, for example, Sam Harris, one of Richard Dawkins' colleagues as a new atheist, is now giving online meditation courses. So um, there's actually in the last few years, there has been an opening up of what you call this liminal area in between science and religion, uh, where spiritual practices uh, can actually be studied scientifically. Increasing numbers of people are taking up meditation, yoga, um, and other spiritual practices. Do you feel like there's 
Is there any danger in that new sort of spiritual uh, realm that the original purpose and the higher meaning of those practices is sort of removed in trying to make them seem relevant in a materialistic context? So you you talk about, oh, there are measurable things like it improves sleep, it makes you live longer and so on. So almost you've almost conceded too much by saying that it should be validated in those metrics. Do, do you see what I mean? Is there, is there a danger of, of conceding too much ground if you enter that kind of conversation? Well, I don't, actually, I don't think so. I mean, I think that these practices um, which exist within religions and also for people who are spiritual but not religious, um, they don't have to have a, a religious context. Some do. I mean, for example, um, rituals and the power of rituals is something that's hard to do on your own. Uh, that, that requires a more collective participation. Um, uh, but some practices like meditation or private prayer, petitionary prayer, are things that religious people also do on their own, you know, sit quietly in a quiet room and, and do these practices. I think the interpretation of the effects depends on your worldview. Um, meditation in its Buddhist, Hindu and Christian contemplative contexts is about contacting the ground of consciousness itself, which is the divine ground of the universe within those religious worldviews. For people who are materialists who meditate, it's about doing something to your brain that makes you feel better, maybe short-circuiting or changing electrical patterns or changing the levels of um, neurotransmitters. Uh, and it's seen in physical terms. Although the experiences people have uh, may suggest that consciousness is greater than their own brain. Um, some people who meditate may change their worldview as a result, but you don't have to believe in a religious worldview to start. And I think that's actually good. It's, it, it's a gateway to spiritual experience which can be helpful in people's lives. I don't think that it's either damaging religion or science. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you now a religious person, um, Rupert? Do you, do you see those kind of experiences through a religious rather than materialist lens? Yes, I do. I mean, I went through a, a Dawkins-type atheist phase last year, released 10, 15 years when I was at school and doing research at Cambridge. But I was drawn back to a more religious view, partly through psychedelic experience, partly through traveling in India, partly through taking up meditation uh, and yoga. Um, and I lived in India for seven years. I worked in an agricultural research institute. I was the principal plant physiologist at ICRASAT, which is an international institute in India. Um, and rather to my surprise, I found myself drawn back to a Christian path. As I was confirmed in India at the age of 36 in, in the Church of South India, and I'm now a practicing church-going Anglican. So for me, uh, these spiritual practices fit within a Christian framework. Um, but I'm a scientist. I've lived in India. I have many friends who are Buddhists, Hindus, spiritual but not religious, Sufis. Um, I certainly don't claim that only this religious Christian and specifically Anglican framework is valid. I don't. I think that all religions are paths to God, and and um, that spiritual practice practices can help anyone within any religious tradition and indeed outside religious traditions. I mean, one. Uh, I sorry to keep bringing it back to the pandemic. It's just this is the current moment we're in, and it sort of does tend to colour the way we look at these things. The Church of England, at least, closed its doors uh, in the first part of this pandemic for the first time, I believe, since the interdiction of 1215 or whenever it was. Um, and there has been a sense, certainly what you describe, which is group ritual, has been impossible. People have been confined to their homes. And, uh, you know, this kind of Zoom call is what people have been making do with. Do you worry about that sort of aspect that the, the, the group rituals and the sort of embodied part of um, the religious world is suffering in this new, more sort of isolated, technology-enabled period? Well, I think there was a period when uh, it, it varied very much from church to church. I mean, here in, North, in Hampstead, in North London, where I live, some churches have functioned more or less through this whole period. Others haven't. Hampstead Parish Church had a Christmas service at which one member of the choir had COVID, and then all the choir and both priests went down with COVID, and that led to a closure of the church for a while. Um, understandable. Um, but I, I think various, uh, certainly in the last, I don't know how long, weeks and months, um, regular services have been happening. I've been going to them myself. So, um, I don't, this is certainly not a big issue at the moment, except for having to wear masks. I prefer not to do that. I suppose this, that more generally, this sort of um, 
this technology-mediated conversation that we're now getting used to, we're having one right now, uh, replacing the actual physical conversation, that seems to be a trend that is going to be sticking around. Um, and I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. You've, you've described things called flow, which is a sort of um, experience that human beings have when they are together um, doing things, whether they're team sports or religious worship. Um, that sort of embodied existence seems somewhat under threat in this era of technology. Well, yes, I, I think it's both and actually. I mean, for example, one upside of all this, since we're talking about the religious activity and the Church of England in particular, has been that many cathedrals are now streaming this lovely daily service of choral evensong uh, from the cathedrals. Some of them continued to do it uh, during the darkest periods of lockdown. They weren't allowed a congregation, but they, they did it and it was streamed online. And you can now go, there's a website called choralevensong.org, where you can go today if you want to, you can go to uh, Evensong at Canterbury or Durham or Chichester or Winchester or Lincoln, um, our great cathedrals. Um, and many of them now have congregations again. You can actually go to the service, but they've continued with the streaming, which has meant that a lot of people can take part um, at a distance who couldn't before. So I think it's an advantage actually. And in terms of scientific conversations and conferences, um, I've been having many conversations with scientific colleagues on Zoom and spoken at quite a few scientific conferences, which has meant I haven't been traveling all around the world emitting lots and lots of carbon dioxide. So I think that you know, one of the things we've got to do is travel less. And I think that the this is, kick-started a, a, a new way of doing scientific conferences and, uh, and meetings, which is much less carbon intensive. And I think that's an enormous advantage. And I'd personally be very disappointed if everyone started traveling all around the world for every kind of meeting that they, uh, they could do on Zoom. It's interesting because people really divide on, on that um, as other Things. And I wasn't sure which way you would go, to be honest, when we before we had this conversation, that a lot of um, our viewers and a lot of people I speak to are really, really worried about the direction of travel. Um, and they feel like this sort of the increased focus on surveillance and apps and this sense that we are increasingly atomized individuals sort of responding to central science and technology driven governments actually really spooks them. Uh, but it it sounds like you're quite relaxed about that or, or, or not overly worried. Would that be fair? Yes, I'm not overly worried. And I think one of the big advantages of, of the period we've all been through is an increased focus on local uh, things. I mean, I live near Hampstead Heath and during the periods of lockdown, huge, you know, unprecedented numbers of people discovered the heath and were out in the fresh air on the heath and observed as I did myself every day, you know, you notice the changes through the spring of what comes into leaf and into flower. And I've spent much more time in my own garden. And, you know, I started out as a botanist. I love plants as one of my great passions. And um, for me, it's been a total delight. And that's an embodied experience. I mean, the gardening and the walking on the heath. 
more embodied than sitting around in airports and getting on planes, uh, which is, uh, although obviously it's literally embodied, it, it puts one in a kind of large parts of one's life in a kind of area of limbo, which is not really in one place or in another. And I think that what we need in, in, as we go into a more, you know, we have to live in a less consumption, less uh, demands on the on the earth. So we need to leave, live more locally. And I think this has actually helped, not hindered that. When we spoke to um, Richard Dawkins last week, he was celebrating the shrinking percentage of the population that belong to any faith at all and the growing percentage of nuns, as you call them, which are people who don't believe in any religious faith. And I asked him what the perfect number of that would be, and he said 0% is the dream target of religious people. He would prefer a world with no religious people in it. Uh, I just wondered what your thoughts were about that. Would, would you take issue with that? Well, first of all, it's not going to happen. And secondly, I think it would be an incredible impoverishment of human life if that happened. I mean, think of the great cathedrals that we have. They're some of the greatest glories of our land. Uh, and every village with a parish church, a medieval, in many cases, medieval church where people have gathered together, sung together, prayed together, celebrated rites of passage together for, for centuries. Um, and the cathedrals with this wonderful music chanting every day. I mean, it, I suppose what would happen is that they'd be turned into museums, like in the Soviet Union, which was officially atheist, and tried to achieve the goal that Richard Dawkins advocates, namely, they tried to stamp out religion entirely. Um, you know, the cathedrals were turned into museums, and one of, the, one of the main cathedrals was into a museum of atheism. Well, uh, personally, I think that would be an incredible cultural impoverishment. Um, and so, and I think the meaning, the structure that religions give to people's lives uh, not only help them, they have measurable effects. That's why all these studies on religious practice shows very clear results from thousands of scientific papers all around the world. The people who have religious practices are happier, healthier and live longer than those that don't. Um, so I think personally that militant atheism should come with a health warning. I mean, yeah. the, some people say, and I actually put this to Professor Dawkins as well, that militant atheism actually is a sort of branch of Christianity in a weird way, that the, the kind of evangelical nature of it um, and the sense of uh, rightness and the, the need to convert people who haven't yet seen the light actually is a direct inheritance from evangelical Christianity. He didn't like that much either, I must say. Do you think there's some truth in that? Yes, I think evangelical atheism is a Christian heresy, as indeed secular humanism is. And um, if you think of many uh, atheists are also secular humanists. And humanism as a kind of religion started in the 19th century in France. And it was a deliberate attempt to retain the ethical structure of Christianity, but instead of worshipping God, worshipping humanity. So God was removed and humanity was put in God's place as the center of the religion of humanism. Um, and so um, humanists, you know, it's a form of speciesism. Everything has to be done for human good. It doesn't do much good to other species on the earth, too much emphasis on humanism. Um, and I would say, and if you look at the current 
struggle for human rights, you know, trans rights, gender rights, and all this kind of thing, that's so much part of modern political discourse. Where does that come from? It comes from, I think, a secularized version of the Christian view that everyone's equal in the sight of God. It's not in, it certainly wasn't part of classical Roman or Greek culture. Those were slave-owning societies. I lived for years in India. It's certainly not part of the Indian worldview traditionally, which has a caste system, very strongly developed caste system. Mm. Um, so this conception... Well, and it, it's not. I mean, it, you're right that those kind of hot topics and controversies are generally confined to the Christian, post-Christian West. You don't exactly. find them in Muslim countries so much. No, and they're in the post-Christian West because, in a sense, the activists who are pursuing this are like a kind of evangelical, I would say somewhat in, in the puritanical tradition of, of Christianity uh, rather than the more inclusive Catholic tradition. Um, uh, I definitely see these as derivatives of uh, the Christian worldview. In fact, in many ways, Christianity is a victim of its own success. I mean, in the Middle Ages, Christians started universities, schools, hospitals, um, social welfare systems. And those roles have all been taken over by the state. Um, but before that, the only place that did them was the church. And they also uh, propagated this ethic of, you know, this equality before God, which led first to democracy. It affected the freeing of the slaves on moral grounds. Um, the abolition of slavery was strongly motivated by uh, mainly Christians. Um, and I think that in a secularized form, it underlies many of the movements in the modern world. Um, and uh, even communism, which uh, is, is really a kind of Judeo-Christian millenarian movement. Does all this worry you at all, Rupert? We're talking about current trends in politics with these controversies that are raging on a day-to-day -day basis whether or not they are inspired by a Christian background. We've had a very politically turbulent five-year period. Um, it's the anniversary of the Brexit vote this week. We had, obviously, Donald Trump came and went in that intervening period. Do you feel that the sort of political ructions are in some way a, the, a manifestation of these deeper philosophical confusions? Yes, I do, actually. And, and I think that they, you know, there's obviously many factors at work here. One of them is neoliberalism and the kind of globalization, uh, global capitalism, um, which led to a kind of backlash. I mean, the Brexit thing and the Trumpism and stuff are to some degree reactions to neoliberal capitalism. Um, and neoliberal capitalism is based on 17th century ideas about human nature, which in the person of Thomas Hobbes coexisted with the foundations of mechanistic science as we know it. So they're, they're closely linked to sort of ideological and philosophical worldviews. Um, and those are the issues going on in the background, I think, behind all these um, surface events. And I personally don't get very involved in sort of day-to-day -day politics. I'm sort of fairly non-political. I mean, if I had to say what my politics were, I'd say vaguely green. But uh, the um, the um, I'm very very interested in the underlying underlying philosophies and particularly the scientific issues behind. This. But do you think then? I mean, if we if we if we to bracket the sort of neoliberal world order with a 
mechanistic uh, worldview. And if the first of those things is being rejected through these political rebellions, do you uh, think that the materialistic worldview is is being rejected at the same time? Do you do you have any sense that that's actually happening? Well, most people aren't even aware there is a materialistic worldview. They just think it's science or the scientific worldview or the truth, if they're believers in scientism. Um, so most people are not actually aware of the underlying philosophical issues. It's just part of the air we breathe. Um, but I think, yes, I do think that this is undergoing um, a, a change. As I think one area, for example, is in consciousness studies. Mechanistic materialism says the mind's nothing but the brain, as we've already discussed. And um, it's nothing but the activity of the brain that's inside your head. Your mind is nothing but the activity of your brain is confined inside your head, insulated from the rest of the world and from other people. It goes along with an extreme individualist worldview of individuals as social atoms. Um, but consciousness studies, which has now become a valid part of science, um, it is showing us you know, some people have near-death experiences, which are kind of mystical insights that change their lives. Some people have great revelations through psychedelic experiences, and those are being studied scientifically as well, and also their health benefits in therapies of various kinds. Um, the kind of research I'm doing is part of this consciousness studies movement. And even within academic life, within the philosophy of mind, there's a rise of interest in panpsychism, the idea that some kind of psyche or mind, even in electrons or atoms, um, I recently wrote a paper published in the Journal of Consciousness Studies called Is the Sun Conscious? If we're going to take seriously the idea of nature having a kind of consciousness rather than being utterly unconscious, which is the materialist assumption, then the sun may be conscious, the galaxy may be conscious, the whole universe may be conscious. And if so, what does that mean? You know, this is a whole new area of discussion that's opening up that takes us way beyond the narrow confines of dogmatic materialism. So actually, if, you, if I ask you for a concluding thought, instead of your view being that the world is shutting down and that science has become more dogmatic and uh, sort of anything on the fringes is, is not allowed and is being shut out completely, your view is actually that we're almost in a period of opening up uh, and that questions which weren't allowed some years ago are now back on the table. Yes, so I don't share, it's exactly right. Uh, so I don't share this common pessimism or fear or anxiety that many people have, and I can see why. But I think if we look below the surface of the sort of day-to-day -day events which we have to live through, um, that there are bigger changes over longer timescales taking place, which are movements towards opening up rather than closing down. Rupert Sheldrake, thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. That was Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, a biologist and author who has for many decades been investigating parts of science that the mainstream scientific worldview doesn't really welcome. Uh, things like telepathy and what he calls morphic resonance. Some people call it pseudoscience. Others, he has a big following, who believe he is absolutely spot on. Either way, we are always open to new ideas here at Unheard, and it was great to hear from him. Quite surprisingly, he didn't feel that we're in a dark period of 
orthodoxy clamping down at all. He actually thinks questions that were taboo some time ago are now becoming mainstream and that the world is opening up. So that was a surprise. Thanks to him for joining us and thanks to you. This was Lockdown TV. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.